This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Gallatin Canyon by Thomas McGuane, which was published in The New Yorker in January of 2003. The road stretched before me like an arrow. There was only enough of it left before Rigby for me to say, perhaps involuntarily, I wonder if we shouldn't just get married. Louise quickly looked away. The story was chosen by Thea Obrett, who is the author of two novels, The Tiger's Wife and Inland. Hi, Thea. Hi, Deborah. So you said when we first talked about doing a podcast episode that you wanted to read a Western story. Why was that? I think that there's a, a renewed interest in literature of the West and also by authors uh, who hail from the West. And this story, I think, is so deeply rooted in landscape and space and a certain kind of mentality of the Mountain West, which it <laughs> both honors and excoriates. I, um, I've loved the story ever since I first read it, and it just feels very emblematic of the space to me. Now, when the story came out uh, in 2003, you were a teenager. Did you read it then? I did not. I'm ashamed to say. I read it some years later. Don't be later. ashamed. Um, <laughs> But I did read it before I became a resident of the Mountain West myself. And I, I certainly think it shaped the way I thought about the area. Have you been a, a longtime reader of McGuane's work? I would say that I've been reading his work for almost the entire duration of my quote unquote literary life. A friend of mine is a huge fan of his work and, and introduced me to it. And uh, I mean, there's such range in his stories and his novels, there's so much to discover with McGuane always. What is it about this story, Gallatin Canyon, that appeals to you so much? I, I think the humor and sort of the, the narrative consciousness of the story is reflecting on the events that, that it describes from a little ways down the road. I think there's a tendency in literature for older narrative consciousnesses to sneer at their younger selves. And there's, there's not a hint of that in, in this story, even though it's very funny and, and sort of it doesn't shy away from showing the absurdity of the situation that the narrator finds himself in. But there's nothing sneering about it. It's, it's very humane. And I think that that's something that's very representative of McGuane's writing in general. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Taya Obrett reading Gallatin Canyon by Thomas McGuane. Gallatin Canyon. The day we planned the trip, I told Louise that I didn't like going to Idaho via the Gallatin Canyon. It's too narrow, and while trucks don't belong on this road, there they are, lots of them. Tourist pull-offs and wild animals on the highway complete the picture. We could have gone by way of Ennis, but Louise had learned that there were road repairs on Montana Highway 84, 12 miles of torn-up asphalt, in addition to its being rodeo weekend, and do we have to go to Idaho, she asked. I said that I thought it was obvious. A lot rode on the success of our little jaunt, which was ostensibly to close the sale of a small car dealership I owned in the sleepy town of Rigby. But since accepting the offer of a local buyer, I had received a far better one from elsewhere, which, my attorney said, I couldn't take unless my original buyer backed out, and he would only back out if he got sufficiently angry at me. Said my attorney, make him mad. 
So I was headed to Rigby, Idaho, expressly to piss off a small-town businessman who was trying to give me American money for a going concern on the strip east of town and thereby make room for a rich Atlanta investor, new to our landscapes, who needed this dealership as a kind of flagship for his other intentions. The question was how to provoke Rigby without arousing his suspicions. And I might have collected my thoughts a little better had I not had to battle trucks and tourists in the Gallatin Canyon. Louise and I had spent a lot of time together in recent years, and we were both probably wondering where things would go from here. She had been married, briefly, long ago, and that fact, together with the relatively peaceful intervening years, gave a pleasant detachment to most of her relationships, including the one she had with me. In the past, that would have suited me perfectly, but it did not seem to suit me now, and I was so powerfully attached to her, it made me uncomfortable that she wasn't interested in discussing our mutual future, though at least she had never suggested that we wouldn't have one. With her thick, blonde hair pulled back in a barrette, her strong, shapely figure, and the direct fullness of her mouth, she was often noticed by other men. After ten years in Montana, she still had a strong Massachusetts accent. Louise was a lawyer specializing in the adjudication of water rights between agricultural and municipal interests. In our rapidly changing world, she was much in demand. Though I wished we could spend more time together, Louise had taught me not to challenge her on this. No longer the country crossroads of recent memory, Four Corners was filled with dentist's offices, fast food and espresso shops, large and somehow foreboding filling stations that looked at night like colonies in space. Nevertheless, the intersection was true to its name, sending you north to a transcontinental interstate, east into town, west to the ranches of Madison County, and south, my reluctant choice, up the Gallatin Canyon to Yellowstone and the towns of southeast Idaho, one of which contained property with my name on the deed. We joined the stream of traffic heading south, the Gallatin River alongside, and usually much below the roadway, a dashing, high-gradient river with anglers in reflective stillness at the edges of its pools and bright rafts full of delighted tourists in flotation jackets and crash helmets sweeping through its white water. Gradually, the mountains pressed in on all this humanity, and I found myself behind a long line of cars trailing a cattle truck at well below the speed limit. This combination of cumbersome commercial traffic and impatient private cars was a lethal mixture that kept our canyon in the papers as it regularly spat out corpses. In my rearview mirror, I could see a line behind me that was just as long as the one ahead, stretching back, thinning, and vanishing around a green bend. There was no passing lane for several miles. A single amorous elk could have turned us all into twisted smoking metal. You might have been right, Louise said. It doesn't look good. She almost certainly had better things to do. But looking down the line of cars, I felt my blood pressure rising. Her hands rested quietly in her lap. I couldn't possibly have rivaled such serenity. How do you plan to anger this guy in Rigby? She asked. I'm going to try haughtiness. If I suggest that he bought the dealership cheap, he might tell me to keep the damn thing. The Atlanta guy just wants to start somewhere. All these people have a sort of parlay mentality, and they need to get on the playing field before they can start running it up. I'm a trader, 
It all happens for me in the transition. The moment of liquidation is the essence of capitalism. What about the man in Rigby? He's an end user. He wants to keep it. I reflected on the pathos of ownership and the way it could bog you down. You should be in my world, Louise said. According to the law, water has no reality except its use. In Montana, water isn't even wet. Every time some misguided soul suggests that fish need it, it ends up in the state Supreme Court. Birds were fleeing the advance of automobiles. I was elsewhere, trying to imagine my buyer, red-faced, storming out of the closing. I'd offer to let bygones be bygones. I'd take him to dinner. I'd throw a steak into him, for Christ's sake. In the end, he'd be glad he wasn't stuck with the lot. Traffic headed toward us far down the road. We were all packed together to make sure no one tried to pass. The rules had to be enforced. Occasionally, someone drifted out for a better look, but not far enough that someone else could close his space and possibly seal his fate. This trip had its risks. I had only recently admitted to myself that I would like to make more of my situation with Louise than currently existed. Though ours was hardly a chaste relationship, real intimacy was relatively scarce. People in relationships nowadays seem to retain their secrets like bank deposits. They always set some aside in case they might need them to spend on someone new. I found it unpleasant to think that Louise could be withholding anything. But I thought I was more presentable than I had been. When Louise and I first met, I was just coming off two and a half years of peddling satellite dishes in towns where a couple of dogs doing the wild thing in the middle of the road amounted to the high point of a year, and the highest grossing business was a methamphetamine tent camp out in the sagebrush. Now, I had caught the upswing in our local economy. Cars, storage, tool rental, and mortgage discounting. I had a pretty home, debt-free, out on sourdough. I owned a few things. I could be okay. I asked Louise what she thought of the new prosperity around us. She said, wearily, I'm not sure it's such a good thing living in a boom town. It's basically a high-end carny atmosphere. We were just passing Storm Castle and Garnet Mountain. When I glanced in the mirror, I saw a low red car with a scoop in its hood pull out to pass. I must have reacted somehow because Louise asked me if I would like her to drive. No, that's fine. Things are getting a bit lively back there. Drive defensively. Not much choice, is there? I had been mentally rehearsing the closing in Rigby, and I wasn't getting anywhere. I had this sort of absurd picture of myself strutting into the meeting. I tried again to picture the buyer looking seriously annoyed, but I'd met him before, and he seemed pretty level-headed. I suspected I'd have to be really outlandish to get a rise out of him. He was a fourth-generation resident of Rigby, so I could always urge him to get to know his neighbors, I decided. Or, since he had come up through the service department, I could try emphasizing the need to study how the cars actually ran. I'd use hand signals to fend off objections. I felt more secure. Some elk had wandered into the parking lot at Buck's T4 and were grazing indifferently as people pulled off the highway to admire them. I don't know if it was the great, unmarred blue sky overhead or the balsamic zephyr that poured down the mountainside, but I found myself momentarily buoyed by all this idleness, people out of their cars. I am always encouraged when I see animals doing something other than running for their lives. 
In any case, the stream of traffic ahead of us had been much reduced by the pedestrian rubbernecking. My husband lived here one winter, Louise said. He sold his pharmacy after we divorced, not that he had to, and set out to change his life. He became a mountain man, wore buckskin clothes. He tried living off the land one day a week with the idea that he would build up. But then he just stuck with one day a week. He'd shoot a rabbit or something, more of a diet, really. He's a real estate agent now at Big Sky. I think he's doing well. At least he's quit killing rabbits. Remarried? Yes. As soon as we hit the open country around West Yellowstone, Louise called her office. When her secretary put her on hold, Louise covered the mouthpiece and said, He married a super gal. Minnesota, I think. She should be good for Bob, and he's not easy. Bob's from the South. For men, it's a full-time job being Southern. It just wears them out. It wore me out, too. I developed doubtful behaviors. I pulled out my eyelashes and ate $2,800 worth of macadamia nuts. Her secretary came back on the line, and Louise began editing her schedule with impressive precision, mouthing the word sorry to me when the conversation dragged on. I began musing about my capacity to live successfully with someone as competent as Louise. There was no implied hierarchy of status between us, but I wondered if, in the long run, something would have to give. West Yellowstone seemed entirely given over to the well-being of the snowmobile, and the billboards dedicated to it were anomalous on a sunny day like today. By winter, school children would be petitioning futilely to control the noise at night so that they could do their schoolwork, and the town would turn a blind eye as a cloud of smoke arose to gas residents, travelers, and park rangers alike. It seemed incredible to me that recreation could acquire this level of social momentum, that it could be seen as an inalienable right. We came down Targhee Pass and into Idaho, into a wasteland of spindly pines that had replaced the former forest, and Louise gave voice to the thoughts she'd been having for the past few miles. Why don't you just let this deal close? You really have no guarantees from the man from Atlanta. And there's a good faith issue here, too, I think. A lawyerly notation. So be it, but it's true. Are you trying to get every last cent out of this sale? That's second. The first priority is to be done with it. It was meant to be a passive investment, and it has turned out not to be. I get 20 calls a day from the dealership, most with questions I can't answer. It's turning me into a giant bullshit machine. No investments are really passive. Mutual funds are close. That's why they don't pay. Some of them pay, or they would cease to exist. You make a poor libertarian, my darling. You sound like that little puke David Stockman. Stockman was right about everything. Reagan just didn't have the guts to take his advice. Reagan, give me a break. I didn't mind equal billing in a relationship, but I did dread the idea of parties speaking strictly from their entitlements across a chasm. Inevitably, sex would make chaos of much of this, but you couldn't, despite Benjamin Franklin's suggestion, use venery as a management tool. Louise adjusted her seat back and folded her arms, gazing at the sunny side of the road. The light through the windshield accentuated the shape of her face, now in repose. I found her beautiful. I adored her when she was a noun and was alarmed when she was a verb, which was usually the case. I understood that this was not the best thing I could say about myself. When her hand drifted over to my leg, I hardly knew what to do with this reference to the other life we led. 
I knew that it was an excellent thing to be reminded of how inconsequential my worldly concerns were, but one warm hand rested casually and my interest traveled to the basics of the species. Ashton, St. Anthony, Sugar City, Mormon hamlets, small farms, and the furious reordering of watersheds into industrial canals. Irrigation haze hung over the valley of the snake, and the skies were less bright than they had been just a few miles back in Montana. Many locals had been killed when the Teton Dam burst, and despite that, they wanted to build it again. The relationship to water here was like a war, and in war, lives are lost. These were the folk to whom I'd sold many a plane car. Ostentation was thoroughly unacceptable hereabouts. The four-door sedan with a six-cylinder engine was the desired item, an identical one with 150,000 miles on it generally taken in trade at zero value thanks to the manipulation of rebates against the manufacturer's suggested retail. Appearances were foremost, and the salesman who could leave a customer's smugness undisturbed flourished in this atmosphere. I had two of them, potato-fattened, bland opportunists with nine kids between them. They were the asset I was selling. The rest was little more than bricks and mortar. We pressed on toward Rexburg, and amid the turnoffs for Wilford, Newdale, Hibbard, and Moody, the only thing that had any flavor was Hog Hollow Road, which was a shortcut to France. Not the one in Europe, but the one just a hop, skip, and a jump south of Squirrel, Idaho. There were license plate holders with my name on them in Squirrel, and I was oddly vain about that. Sure seems lonesome around here. Louise said, oh boy. The houses are like little forts. The winters are hard. But it was less that the small, neat dwellings around us appeared defensive than that they seemed to be trying to avoid attracting the wrath of some inattentive god. It looks like government housing for Eskimos. They just sit inside waiting for a whale or something. This banter had the peculiar effect of making me want to cleave to Louise, and desperately, too to build a warm new civilization, possibly in a foolish house with turrets. The road stretched before me like an arrow. There was only enough of it left before Rigby for me to say, perhaps involuntarily, I wonder if we shouldn't just get married. Louise quickly looked away. Her silence conferred a certain seriousness on my question. But there was Rigby, and in the parlance of all who have extracted funds from locals, Rigby had been good to me. Main Street was lined with ambitious and beautiful stone buildings, old for this part of the world. Their second and third floors were now affordable housing, and their street levels were occupied by businesses hanging on by their fingernails. You could still detect the hopes of the dead, their dreams even, though it seemed to be only a matter of time before the wind carried them away once and for all. I drove past the car lot at 200 East Fremont without comment, and, considering the amount of difficulty it had caused me in the years before I got it stabilized and began to enjoy its very modest yields, without much feeling. I remembered the day sometime earlier when I had tried to help park the cars in the front row and got everything so crooked that the salesmen, not concealing their contempt, had to do it all over again. The title company where we were heading was on the same street, and it was a livelier place, from the row of perky evergreens out front to the merry receptionist who greeted us, a handsome young woman, probably a farm girl only moments before, enjoying the clothes, makeup, and perquisites of the new world that her firm was helping to build. 
We were shown into a spacious conference room with a long table and chairs, freshly sharpened pencils, and crisp notepads bearing the company letterhead. Shall I stay? Louise asked. The first thing she'd said since my earlier inadvertent remark, which I intuited had not been altogether rejected. Please, I said, gesturing toward a chair next to the one I meant to take. At that moment, the escrow agent entered and, standing very close to us, introduced himself as Brent Colby. Then he went to the far end of the table where he spread his documents around in an orderly fan. Colby was around 50, with iron-gray hair and a deeply lined face. He wore pressed jeans, a brilliant white snap-button shirt, cowboy boots, and a belt buckle with a steer head on it. He had thick, hairy hands and a gleaming wedding band. Just as he raised his left wrist to check his watch, the door opened and Oren Johnson, the buyer, entered. He went straight to Louise and, taking her hand in both of his, introduced himself. It occurred to me that, in trying to be suave, Oren Johnson had revealed himself to be a clodhopper, but I was probably just experiencing the mild hostility that emanates from every sale of property. Oren wore a suit, though it suggested less a costume for business than one for church. He had a gold tooth and a cautious pompadour. He, too, wore an investment-grade wedding band, and I noted that there was plenty of room in his black-laced shoes for his toes. He turned and said that it was good to see me again after so long. The time had come for me to go into my act. With grotesque hauteur, I said that I didn't realize we had ever met. This was work. Orrin Johnson bustled with inchoate energy. He was the kind of small-town leader who sets an example by silently getting things done. He suggested this just by arranging his pencils and notepad and repositioning his chair with rough precision. Locking eyes with me, he stated that he was a man of his word. I didn't know what he was getting at, but took it to mean that the formalities of a closing were superfluous to the old-time handshake with which Orrin Johnson customarily did business. I smiled and quizzically cocked my head as if to say that the newfangled arrangements with well-attested documents promptly conveyed to the courthouse suited me just fine. The deals made on handshakes were strictly for the pious or the picturesque. My message was clear enough that Louise shifted uncomfortably in her chair and Brent Colby knocked his documents edgewise on the desk to align them. As far as Orrin Johnson was concerned, I was beginning to feel that anyone who strayed from the basic patterns of farm life to sell cars bore watching. Like a method actor, I already believed my part. You're an awfully lucky man, Orrin Johnson, I said to him, leaning back in my chair. I could see Louise open-mouthed two seats away from Brent Colby, and observing myself through her eyes gave me a sudden burst of panic. Oh, Orrin Johnson said. How's that? How's that? I did a precise job of replicating his inflection. I am permitting you to purchase my car lot. You've seen the books. How often does a man get a shot at a business where all the work's been done for him? Brent Colby was doing an incomplete job of concealing his distaste. He was enough of a tin horn to clear his throat theatrically. But Orrin Johnson treated this as a colossal interruption and cast a firm glance his way. It doesn't look all that automatic to me, he said. Ah, hell, you're just going to coin it. Pull the lever and relax. What about the illegal oil dump? I wish I had a nickel for every crankcase full that went into that hole. 
then I wouldn't worry about what's going to happen when the DEQ lowers the boom. Maybe you ought to ride your potato harvester another year or two if you're so risk-averse. Cars are the future. They're not for everybody. Warren Johnson's face reddened. He pushed his pencils and notepad almost out of reach in the middle of the conference table. He contemplated these supplies a moment before raising his eyes to mine. I suppose you could put this car a lot where the sun don't shine, if that suits you. Johnson having taken a stand, I immediately felt unsure that I even had another buyer. Had I ever acknowledged how much I longed to get rid of this business and put an end to all those embarrassing phone calls? I wanted to hand the moment off to someone else while I collected my thoughts, but as I looked around the room, I found no one who was interested in rescuing me. Least of all Louise, who had raised one eyebrow at the vast peculiarity of my performance. Suddenly, I was desperate to keep the deal from falling apart. I gave my head a little twist to free my neck from the constrictions of my collar. I performed this gesture too vigorously, and I had the feeling that it might seem like the first movement of some sort of dance filled with sensual flourishes and bordering on the moronic. I had lost my grip. Oren, I said, and the familiarity seemed inappropriate. I was attached to this little enterprise. I wanted to be sure you valued it. The deal closed, and I had my check. I tipped back in my chair to think of a few commemorative words for the new owner, but the two men left the room without giving me the chance to speak. I shrugged at Louise, and she, too, rose to go, pausing a moment beneath an enormous kodachrome of a bugling elk. I was aware of her distance, and I sensed that my waffling hadn't gone over particularly well. I concluded that at no time in the future would I act out a role to accomplish anything. This decision quickly evaporated with the realization that it was practically all we do in life. Comedy failed, too. When I told Louise that I had been within an inch of opening a can of whoop-ass on the buyer, I barely got a smile. There's nothing more desolating than having a phrase like that die on your lips. It was dark when we got back to Targay Pass. Leaving town, we passed the Beehive Assisted Living Facility and the Riot Zone, a family fun park. Most of the citizens we spotted there seemed unlikely rioters. I drove past a huge neon stake, its blue T-bone flashing above a restaurant that was closed and dark. There were deer on the road, and once, as we passed through a murky section of forest, we saw the pale faces of children waiting to cross. What are they doing at this hour? I don't know, Louise said. I made good time on the pine flats north of the snowmobile capital of the world, and I wondered what it would be like to live in a town that was the world capital of a mechanical gadget. In Rigby, we had seen a homely museum dedicated to Philo T. Farnsworth, the inventor of television, which featured displays of Farnsworth's funky assemblages of tubes and wire and apparently coat hangers. Stuff his wife was probably always attempting to throw out, a goal Louise supported. Too bad Mama Farnsworth didn't take all that stuff to the dump, she said. We had the highway to ourselves, and clouds of stars seemed to rise up from the wilderness, lighting the treetops in a cool fire. Slowly the canyon closed in around us, and we entered its flowing dark space. The idyll ended just past the ranger station at Black Butte. 
when a car pulled in behind us abruptly enough that I checked my speed to see if I was violating the limit. But I wasn't. Then the car was very close, and the driver shifted his lights to a high beam so intense that I could see our shadows on the dashboard, my knuckles on the steering wheel glaringly white. I was nearly blinded by my own mirrors, which I hastily adjusted. I said, what's with this guy? Just let him pass. I don't know that he wants to. I softened my pressure on the gas pedal. I thought that by easing my already moderate speed, I would politely suggest that he might go by me. I even hugged the shoulder, but he remained glued to our bumper. There was something about this that reminded me strongly of my feeling of failure back in Rigby, but I was unable to put my finger on it. Maybe it was the hot light of liquidation in the glare of which all motives seem laid bare. I slowed down even more without managing to persuade my tormentor to pass. Jesus, Louise said, pull over. In her accent, it came out as pull over. I moved off to the side of the road slowly and predictably, but although I had stopped, the incandescent globes persisted in our rearview mirror. This is very strange, Louise said. Shall I go back and speak to him? After considering for a moment, she said, no. Why? Because this is not normal. I put the car in gear again and pulled back onto the highway. The last reasonable thought I had was that I would proceed to Bozeman as though nothing were going on, and once I was back in civilization, my tormentor's behavior would be visible to all, and I could, if necessary, simply drive to the police station with him in tow. Our blinding, syncopated journey continued another mile before we reached a sweeping eastward bend closely guarded by the canyon walls. I knew that just beyond the bend, there was a scenic pull-off, and that the approaching curve was acute enough for a small lead to put me out of sight. Whether or not this was plausible, I had no idea. I was exhilarated to be taking a firm hand in my own affairs. And a firm foot. As we entered the narrows, I pinned the accelerator and we shot into the dark. Louise grabbed the front edges of her seat and stared at the road twisting in front of us. She emitted something like a moan, which I had heard before in a very different context. Halfway around the curve, my tormentor vanished behind us, and although my car seemed only marginally under control, the absence of blinding light was a relief as we fled into darkness. When we emerged and the road straightened, I turned off my lights. I was going so fast I felt lightheaded, but the road was visible under the stars, and I was able to brake hard and drop down, into the scenic turnoff. Seconds later, our new friend shot past, lights blazing into nowhere. He was clearly determined to catch us. His progress up the canyon was rapid and increasingly erratic. We watched in fascination until the lights suddenly jerked sideways, shining in white cones across the river, turned downward, then disappeared. I heard Louise say in a tone of reasonable observation, he went in. I had an urgent feeling that took a long time to turn into words. Did I do that? She shook her head and I pulled out onto the highway, my own headlights on once more. I drove in an odd, measured way, as if bound for an undesired destination, pulled along by something outside myself, thinking, liquidation. We could see where he'd gone through the guardrail. 
We pulled over and got out. Any hope we might have had for the driver, and we shall be a long time determining if we had any, was gone the minute we looked down from the river bank. The car was submerged, its lights still burning freakishly, illuminating a bulge of crystalline water, a boulder in the exuberance of a mountain watershed. Presently, the lights sank into blackness, and only the silver sheen of river in starlight remained. Louise cried, I wish I could feel something. And when I reached to comfort her, she shoved me away. I had no choice but to climb back up to the roadway. After that, I could encounter Louise only by telephone. I told her that he'd had a record as long as your arm. It's not enough, she said. I called later to say that he was of German and Italian extraction. That proved equally unsatisfactory. And when I called to inform her that he hailed from Wisconsin, she just hung up on me, this time for good. That was Taya Obert reading Gallatin Canyon by Thomas McGuane. The story appeared in The New Yorker in January of 2003 and was included in McGuane's story collection Gallatin Canyon, which was published by Knopf in 2006. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Taya, before the story, you were talking about the narrative consciousness of this story. Uh, it's told in the first person. We're, we're more or less immersed in this man's mind. Who is he? What do we know about him? And how do we know it? I think he's a man who's trying very hard to assume control of various aspects of his life. Um, you know, he's in this relationship of which he's 
of which he's an uncertain party, even though he feels very certain of where he wants the relationship to go. He's trying to get rid of this car dealership, but he's uncertain of the correct means by, you know, the, the correct person to, to sell it to. And every time he grasps at something in an attempt to control it, it spins out of his reach. Every time he puts control in someone else's hands, he can't regain it yeah. somehow. Yeah, absolutely. How do you understand his feelings for Louise? He makes a point of saying he's powerfully attached to her. He wants to see more of her. He wants more emotional intimacy with her, which is something he hasn't wanted previously. Why, why is she different? I think uh, Louise has a um, is portrayed in the story as somebody who's quite self-contained. You know, she has her own business. She has this past marriage that has ended uh, in a way that that allows her to still retain details of her ex's life. You know, she she seems like someone who's very self-contained, very self-possessed. She doesn't really need him. You know, and as they're driving down the canyon um, and they're trapped in this traffic jam and then they're trapped in this car together and then they're trapped in this horrible closing at the dealership <laughs> together. Um, this detachment that he senses from her as, as having applied to her previous relationships, I think he feels it extending to him. And it's this attempt to breach that gap that sort of uh, forces him to continuously make these mistakes in reaching for her because he's trying to close the gap of her detachment and her lack of need for him. And in, in that sense, I think she's a, she's a character with whom the reader is able to bond. Um, <laughs> the reader is able to bond with her, I think, more than the narrator is. Yeah. And you said he's trying to close the gap. And I anticipated you were about to say close the deal because <laughs> it seems as though that's what's going on here. He's going to close a deal, but the deal he wants to close is with Louise. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I was reading a, a New York Times review of the collection this story is in. And it said, McGuane has become our poet philosopher of the arm's length, of the prudently aborted intimacy that keeps both isolation and commitment equally at bay. Mm. And that seemed very sort of eloquent about what has happened in this man's life in the past. And suddenly he's not trying to keep commitment at bay. But how do you think his feelings about Louise are sort of echoed in the car dealership deal? Well, I think that when we start the story, he indicates that if they weren't driving this road, right, like if he had a little bit more time, if he had a little bit more space, he would have perhaps come up with the right way to behave at the closing, to achieve what he wanted. And I think that this is something that applies to his relationship to Louise as well. There's this sense of space and time closing in around him and the inability to find out the correct thing to say or the correct way to behave to achieve the mm. outcome that he wants. And I think that, you know, he's a character who probably hasn't had such a cause and effect chain um, for, for wanted outcome and necessary action very often in his life before. <laughs> and now suddenly they're all presented here in this one disastrous afternoon. And, uh, and it all goes wrong. Yeah. He wants to control her responses and the way he wants to control the responses of Orrin Johnson in the closing meeting. And he fails to do it in both cases. There's that one line that jumps out at me where he says of, of Louise, I adored her when she was a noun and was alarmed when she was a verb. It's such a great line. Um, <laughs> uh, 
he can't handle action on the part of someone else. He wants sort of stasis. Absolutely. Not a good recipe for a relationship, I guess. <laughs> exactly. And it, it's interesting how um, this sort of goes back to the way that Louise talks about her ex-husband, you know, whom she talks about as sort of being Southern. And she talks about how the momentum of being Southern was exhausting for her, you know, being around the, mm-hmm. the fact that being Southern was, was sort of a, a full-time job for him uh, in which he was a very active participant. And here's the narrator, you know, attempting to play an active role and in some ways a very masculine role in their life and in his business life. And and, um, it's exhausting him and it's very apparently exhausting her. (laughs) Yeah. And and he talks about his relationship with her in a transactional way. You know, he what he wants for her is all her secrets. He wants Mm -hmm. real intimacy. In return, he can offer her a pretty house on sourdough. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's a traitor, you know, he refers to himself as a traitor and where he gets his thrill is in the act of liquidation, trading one thing for another. And I guess because the drive isn't relaxing enough, he can't see it that way. (laughs) He can't see what it, what it is that he's kind of trying to do with her or transact with her. Yeah, exactly. When the story was coming out, I did a short online interview with Tom about the story, and I asked him, you know, what he thought about this character. And he said, the narrator of my story really doesn't know enough about himself and is, in fact, subject to unpleasant surprises from his own character. I have some affection for him because I see how he got there and what sort of ephemeral sirens have lured him onto this reef. I don't find him despicable, but rather, in an earlier parlance, unevolved. Mm. And it's funny because a lot of McGuane stories, you get unevolved men who come up against quite evolved women. Right, <laughs> right. Generally better equipped to deal with them than, than vice versa. Which I, which I think is one of the most wonderful things and most pleasurable things and, and, and most enduring pleasures of McGuane stories. You know, these half well-meaning, ultimately hapless, ill-equipped male narrators or protagonists who, having carried the baggage of a certain kind of masculinity reasonably well up until that point, fall under the load at the moment of the telling, Um, usually, uh, or at least often, against a woman. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think Louise sees in him? I think she probably sees, um, you know, he's he's clearly a very good banterer. And that's something that the narrator points out. That the banter is, is something um, sort of thrilling between them. And I think she probably, by the time... By the time we uh, meet her in the story, I think she has drifted through this sort of charming relationship with a reasonably charming person in that state of distance that is comfortable for her. And I think that she's also running up against the fact that now he wants more and that she's running up against it probably for the first time. So what she has seen in him, I think, is a very pleasant diversion up until this moment. It would be interesting to read the story from her point of view, because whatever realizations that he's having about his desire for commitment, I think she's there in the passenger seat having them about her opposite desire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why do you think he suddenly blurts out a marriage proposal? Which is sort of a half-hearted proposal. <laughs> <It's so true. laughs> I mean, everything goes downhill from the way it lands, right? I think it's something that is ill thought out. 
he initiates it in this moment of banter in which he feels, I think, uh, especially comfortable. And when it fails to land well, um, though he does make a note that it doesn't seem to have completely bombed, it throws him off his game. Um, and I think it is this sort of attempt to exist in a world of steerhead belt buckles and, and mm-hmm. um, boots. And, um, you know, he notices the rings of Oren Johnson and, um, and Colby at the, um, at the closing. You know, this, this world of very polished, self-controlled masculinity, um, at least on the surface. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely in that closing meeting with his mind on marriage, yeah, not on what he's doing, yeah. <laughs> um, and nervously awaiting some kind of sign from Louise, which he's not getting. He's not getting at all, and and no, you know, no allegiance even in his in his attempt to extricate himself from the deal. And then the way that he backs out of the way he balks at his own attempt to shake Oren Johnson, I think, is is sort of the last straw because the attempt to enrage Oren Johnson to the point of backing out of the closing is made in the same sort of half-hearted spirit that the marriage proposal was made. And then it's just, that's just the end. Yeah, yeah. And he panics. It's interesting because, yes, he seems to propose in the same way that he behaves in the closing meeting. He's trying to sell something. He's trying to pull out of it. He doesn't know what he wants. Yeah. And in a way... Option B is unknowable. He suddenly doubts whether he has this guy in Atlanta or not. <laughs> you know, perhaps he's completely misunderstood his relationship. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. throughout the meeting, you have Louise kind of sitting in silent judgment. And we can guess what she's thinking, but I don't know if he can guess what she's thinking. And that's, as you say, there's an abyss on the other end of whatever action he takes, right? Like he'll, he'll sort of have half thought out his plan. And then the moment he begins to enact it, he realizes that he hasn't actually processed the other half of the equation, right? Like what comes after. Right. And that void is very palpable in the story, this sort of terrifying feeling of freefall on the other side of of having made this gesture. And then what happens on that drive home? Well, there's a free fall on the, on the other <laughs> side of having made a gesture. Um, exactly. Oh my God. Well, you know, it's... um. When I was reading the story before recording it, I was thinking about how it's a story about cause and effect, but at the same time, it really resists certain literary gestures of, of cause and effect or, or the reader's impulse to connect certain events. So the moment the tormentor shows up on his back bumper, I think the reader naturally, or at least I as a reader naturally think, okay, oh, here's, you know, here's Orrin Johnson, or this is somehow a consequence of that of the rudeness and and sort of miasma of confusion that was present in the closing. But of course it's not, it's just a, a random stranger. And I love how the story resists those types of connections throughout. And, you know, they have this chase. He attempts to assert control once again. He realizes that actually he can drop down into this overlook and and lose the guy and he does and then it's this sort of ultimate disaster the car following them speeds off falls off the cliff and then as he says liquidation of just everything yeah Yeah. why does it go that way because if you look at it from a different point of view he's 
perhaps saved his own life and saved Louise's life by getting away from this crazy person. For sure. Um, well, I think perhaps the story is so much about point of view mm -hmm. and perspective. <laughs> yeah. um, and he certainly, I think he certainly has, this is a, a person who is violently chasing them, whose dangerous maneuvers are putting their own lives in danger. But I think the narrator's psychological state in the moment that it all happens prevents him from being able to you know, see himself as the protagonist of the situation in yeah. some way. You know, he's he's trying to, whenever he reaches out to Louise, to inform her about the man who was pursuing them, you know, who he's clearly researching and who, you know, I, I presume is being revealed to him by various police reports as the inquiry unfolds. It comes from a place of tremendous guilt. He doesn't at any point assert on the page that, well, I saved our lives, you know, and it's not my fault that he was driving like a maniac. He, he actually asks if it was his fault that the man died. Right. Um, he doesn't know. Yeah. He doesn't know. I mean, it's funny that there's this moment during the drive where he says, there was something about this that reminded me strongly of my feeling of failure back in Rigby, but yes. I was unable to put my finger on it. He can't make connections. And as we know, there may be no connection between Rigby and what's happening now, but there's a, an internal connection for him that he's not able to articulate. Yeah, absolutely. And that internal connection then sets the tone for how the entire experience is going to live on in emotional and psychological memory and the weight that it's going to carry as this relationship finally breaks. Yeah, and he sees it as a failure. He sees both things as a failure, which is interesting to me because he does come up with a plan to get away from this crazy person and it succeeds. It's a clever one. He's not really responsible for what, what that man does afterwards. Right. <laughs> but he takes that burden on himself and perhaps Louise puts it on him too. Yeah. And I think that for Louise, it's perhaps sort of a convenient cataclysm um, that, yeah. that, that signals the end of the relationship, you know. And she says, I wish I could feel something when she's standing there looking down off the riverbank. And then when, when he calls her to sort of try to patch things up, you know, by providing her information about this person from whom he saved her. She keeps saying it's, it's not enough. And for her, the way it has ended, the way that the, the chase turned out, provided a traumatic end point to right. a relationship that, that she was probably already considering liquidating on the drive home. Yeah. What do you think that she wants to feel in that moment? You know, she's saying, I wish I could feel something, obviously, about this man who's just died while pursuing us. Or is she saying, I wish I could feel something for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's both. <laughs> I do think it's both. Um, I think Louise, perhaps in that moment, is revealed not to really know herself terribly well or not to be able to make connections particularly well either. Mm -hmm. The, the connection she is making is between the emotional experience of this unpleasant day and this horrific event. And the connectedness of those two things is, is where she dwells. Um, but because her feelings don't go terribly beyond that, possibly what's bothering her is the realization that she too is a little bit lost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that having had this kind of 
highly stressful, difficult drive there because of the traffic and so on, they take the same route home. <laughs> Why at that point not uh, simply go to the other route, which you know was having roadworks earlier, but maybe is clear now. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> And which perhaps doesn't have this maniac on it. I, I suspect that it's a desire to, in that dark, empty, star-filled route they take, it feels like an attempt to recoup where they were that afternoon, you know, this sort of more promising emotional space before the half-hearted marriage proposal and before the show that he made of himself at the closing. Yeah, and what lies at the end of it is, you know, something even worse. If only they could go back to, to bantering over Reaganomics and David Stockman, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I did also at the time ask Tom McGuane in the interview about the driver, you know, who this mystery driver is. Mm -hmm. and, and he said, the man chasing my narrator has a variety of possible identities, the first being that of the Grim Reaper. Or he could be the buyer of the car dealership, experiencing spectacular buyer's remorse. <laughs> the narrator's attempt to identify him in the end as to his ethnicity, his home state, etc., is extremely suspect. So he planted suspicion on whether any of those details that the narrator's passing along to Louise are actually true. Mm. He's trying to dig himself out of a hole, and he has no idea how to do it. And perhaps he doesn't realize that this is a final liquidation, <laughs> you know, on, in all ways, um, not only for the, the man at the bottom of the river. Absolutely. And I think that it it's interesting how the iceberg of the author's intent, which is 90% submerged below the surface, is palpable in the story. The details that the narrator provides to Louise in, in an attempt to sort of explain away this mystery tormentor, they feel real, but they also feel, yeah, they feel suspect. They do on the page. Um, mm -hmm. And we're not given any information about where they come from or, you know. Yeah. I think I, I mentioned um, police investigations before. That was my assumption. But there's really nothing on the page for me to base that on. And so, yeah, it's interesting how how that mystery continues to infuse the final moments of the story. Right. I mean, if we want to, we could see that driver as completely metaphorical, mm -hmm. you know, this, this ugly truth that's chasing him, and he can't quite put his finger on it. And that is that Louise doesn't actually want to marry him, <laughs> or, or this relationship isn't different from the other ones. And it's funny, because it's even, you know, earlier in the story where he keeps insisting on this idea of, of whether the two of them have equal billing. Mm. That kind of stands out to me. You know, he says, there's no implied hierarchy of status between us. And he says, I didn't mind equal billing in a relationship, but I did dread the idea of parties speaking strictly from their entitlements across a chasm. <laughs> there's something he's constantly questioning with her. I mean, maybe she's too smart for him. Maybe she's too successful for him. He's chafing up against it somehow. And maybe it's also what intrigues him. Absolutely. 
And, you know, this need to sort of check in about his status with her, not necessarily his status in relation to her only, but also his status in relation to sort of other men in her life. Um, Mm -hmm. The curiosity about her ex-husband, whose life story after her, she's able to rattle off to him while taking a phone call for her own business, (laughs) you know. Um, And when she mentions the ex-husband, he, you know, the first thing he asks is like, is he remarried? You know, is he, is he, has he moved on? Like, has he been successful in getting this thing that I want from you? And, and, or is he still a threat to me? Mm -hmm. When you talked earlier about uh, liking the story for its humor, how does the humor work here? I mean, it's, as they say, laugh out loud funny. I mean, I think much of it works because of that not sneering, reflective eye, you know, from the point of telling, the narrator is completely aware, it seems, of the absurdity of his own behavior and the futility of his own efforts and the the sort of quiet desperation that permeates his every move. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And we're made aware of it and we're we're aligned then with the narrator's older consciousness and we're able to laugh sort of with um with a lot of heart at the sincere gestures of this younger person who failed to see the disaster he was manifesting and do you get the sense that he has evolved since then <laughs> Yes, because it's so self <laughs> it's so self aware, <laughs> um, and uh, you do get the sense that the way the narrative consciousness reflects on his physicality in the car, the physicality of other characters, Louise's physicality, um, the landscape around them, you know, you do get the sense that the way this is being processed on the page is not necessarily the way it was being processed at the time, right, you know. Right which I think speaks to the evolution. You did an interview with McGuane in which the two of you talked about the landscapes of the American West and, and how they lend themselves to these serious mythic narratives and rarely to humor, but he somehow circumvents that. He really does, which is why, I mean, um, um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm somebody who's, who's been a wanderer all her life and the sense of, of home has been very vague to me. Um, and it's, <laughs> um, it's incredible to interact with the work of someone like McGuane who knows a space and its people so well that he's able to pull these tiny elements of humor that are so specific that they feel universal, you know, and and that's obviously cliche, you know, something so specific that it feels universal. But um, I think you can write about a place, but I think it takes something else to be a writer of a place. Mm -hmm. And McGuane is a writer of the American West. Well, thank you so much, Tia. Thank you for having me. Thomas McGuane is the author of more than a dozen books of fiction, including the novels Nothing But Blue Skies and Driving on the Rim, and the story collections Gallatin Canyon and Crow Fair. Cloudbursts, Collected in New Stories, was published in 2018. Thea Obrecht has published two novels, The Tiger's Wife, which won the Orange Prize for Fiction in 2011, and Inland, which came out in 2019. In 2010, The New Yorker named Obrecht one of the 20 best American fiction writers under the age of 40, 
and the National Book Foundation included her as one of its five under 35. You can download more than 160 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.